Welcome back to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana and this is a bonus episode of my interview with Eric Jumper Anderson talking about his new book Unseen Beings and in this episode we get totally esoteric we go off topic a little bit and we talk about ritual the importance of ritual and we specifically dive into mantra uh, specifically how mantras are spelled so if this is a topic that interests you please listen dive in and let me know what you think you can follow me on Instagram at The Conscious Diva. You can also visit my website, tatianawright.com and theconsciousdiva.com. I hope you enjoy this special little bonus. How important do you think it is for people to learn, even no matter how small the ritual it can be as simple as lighting a candle in your home? Yeah. How important do you think it is to have or include ritual into your life? Uh, so I think on a most basic level, everyone's lives can be really uh, enriched through ritual and storytelling, uh, and it can deepen our experience of being alive in a living world. I think that more esoteric kinds of rituals. I mean, I I practice chud. That's my my main practice. Uh, that's really sort of the the core of my spiritual practice at this point. Uh, I don't do a lot of other things that I was trained in, uh, but chud I I do because it really is a and a very animistically oriented practice that arises in a Tibetan context that's quite different from the mainstream. A lot of Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhist rituals that deal with the natural world and with non-human spirits tend to actually be very domineering, uh, very focused on control, focused on establishing the superiority of the human Vajrayana practitioner over all of the other beings, suppressing the so-called demons, uh, and so on. It, it tends to fall into a lot of the same traps, I think, uh, that, you know, other traditions in the West have fallen into. But uh, this tradition of Machik Leptrin, the one of the few genuine matriarchs of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, who founded her own tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, really on the basis of compassion for all beings, especially for Mimayin, for non-humans, uh, as well as for humans. So this whole ritual sort of paradigm is very unique in Tibetan Buddhism, and it's very close to my heart. And it's what I engage with most, uh, most frequently when I go into the wild world, uh, or just in my home to be able to relate with the land, relate with the beings around me, and to also sort of uh, flip my own uh, grasping to myself on its head. Uh, it, it covers a lot of ground. Uh, I could talk about it for hours, but I'll avoid doing that. So <laughs> engage with that. Um, and I think that that's incredibly valuable for those that are called to that kind of work. I think more sort of shamanic modes of engagement, animistic forms of engagement are incredibly valuable in addition to, but also potentially as the focus of our spiritual practice. Because some people, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, I think especially in the West, think of this sort of division between the more sort of soteriological practices that are focused on liberation. They're the real important Buddhist practices that are all about transforming, you know, your your mind and um you know transforming yourself into the the body of a buddha and the mind and speech of a buddha and attaining liberation and, and going to a pure land and all of that stuff for a lot of western tibetan buddhists those are the real buddhist practices where uh, whereas naga pujas or uh smoke offering practices or water offering practices and so on those are cultural practices those are sort of the cultural baggage that you can do without because it's superstitious and this is bullshit this is uh, there there's no there's no reality 
there's no reality to that kind of division. Early Buddhism also had those so-called cultural practices, and they are just as essential uh, for our full embodiment in the world as any of the others are, arguably more so, especially in our day and age where our relationship with the so-called natural world is at a, a really critical point. So I think that they're very important. On the same on the same token, I do think that there's a certain element of ritual in certain traditions that have been constructed to sort of assuage guilt and to sidestep uh, ethical responsibility. So we see this especially in cases of like animal slaughter. You know, when you have a tradition like Vajrayana, like tantric Buddhism in Tibet, where, you know, people uh, eat a lot of meat out of necessity, but also in diaspora, Tibetans in exile, in my experience, eat more meat than Americans in the South do. They, they eat meat with every single meal. And it's purchased the same way that everyone else purchase, purchases their meat in Tibet and in Tibetan communities in Asia. It's usually non-Buddhists uh, that are the butchers. So they'll just rely on Muslims, for instance, to kill the animals for them. And then they wait for it to go through three hands and they take it and they think that that's karmically clean, even though they paid for it, even though they're consuming it with every meal, even though they're a part of the demand that creates the production of it. Uh, but in their mind, because of the sort of uh, the, the paradigm of karma, it's something that you can sidestep, you can avoid through pragmatic sort of manipulation and cleverness. And you can just recite some prayers to make it actually a morally positive thing. Uh, there's a whole paradigm in Tibetan Buddhism that as long as you eat an animal's flesh in the context of a tantric feast, then that animal is immediately liberated into a better rebirth because animals supposedly have these terrible lives that are just full of ignorance and misery and suffering and hatred. And it would actually be better, they'd be better off dead as long as they could get a human rebirth or they could go to a pure land where they can be absolved of their terrible animalness. So in this worldview, as long as you eat an animal after saying a couple of spells, then that animal is actually better off. So you might as well kill them. That sort of mentality, in my opinion, is absolute nonsense. It's only a way of sidestepping guilt. I think there's a value in it in a context where you have no choice but to eat an animal-based diet because plants don't grow and you don't have an abundance of plant-based foods to be able to subsist on. But Without that, without that uh, that necessity, it becomes a way of really just completely bypassing any form of morality whatsoever. Uh, there's no incentive to avoid killing animals. There's no incentive to avoid exploiting and torturing and harming other beings because there's a whole dogmatic sort of paradigm where you can actually make those things perfectly fine. You can confess. You can actually do rituals that absolve you of misdeeds of non-virtue before you commit them. So it's essentially a Catholic indulgence. There's, you know, paradigms where you can actually turn a murder into a positive act, into something, a liberation. Uh, you know, the story of Padmasambhava, the father of Tibetan Buddhism, mythically, a mythic figure that's considered the father of Tibetan Buddhism. His story is full of countless, countless, countless examples of him killing beings, killing humans, killing animals, killing demons, it's killing also, When you break down the mantras, a lot of the mantras, they're not for the 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 creature that's being as you just described with no. the liberation of the animals they're actually for the the doer 
the human totally. they've got they've got nothing to do with liberating the other person totally. or, or a creature it's literally I, I mean those mantras are so you know you refer to them as spells which is what they are but yeah, it, yeah. When, when each one is broken down it's it's protecting that person on some energetic level from the forces of being attacked by whoever they're whoever's life they're taking or whatever the the uh. negative deed is and 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 hoping that no harm will come to them as a result of what's what they've just done but yeah. i i think harm comes anyway so no it i mean there's i mean i know you we could probably just go on and on and on about yeah. it. <laughs> no, well, a point a point on that is sometimes those those mantras those spells and duranis they are themselves weapons you yes. know they're they, they are themselves functioning as weapons as yeah. as methods of creating harm usually within oh, a context no. we have they're to destroy activations oh they're not yeah. they're not like i mean the, the mantras that most people in the west i mean everyone knows oh my yeah. like, but that, yeah. that's like a really basic like that that's just that's so simple but there's so i mean simple but powerful in itself but there's so many i mean we literally could talk about mantra and and and, and on and on and, and i've had great conversations with people who are amazing mantricas and just completely understand yeah. the power and the frequency and the vibration and what is happening and and it is an energetic uh effect there's a reverberation that 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 occurs and they're not just you know for they're enchantment yeah. they're enchantment spells a lot of them they're yeah. not like invoking of course there's an invocations for bringing in abundance and prosperity and good health and yeah. all of this stuff uh but there's also and you need to go to serious practitioners who understand how to manipulate the, the energy on on such a subtle level that it, it's like i mean that's where you get these stories of dark magic and, and stuff from yeah. they're like that goes back many traditions and I, I know somebody who's a yeah. very serious practitioner who collects spirit boxes and yeah. I, I was like wow and he said no yeah. these are serious he's like i i use them from time to time when i have to extract some a really potent right. spirit from someone who's been cursed and trap it and then and they're you know they're made of iron they're triangular yeah. they, they've got skulls yeah, yeah. they're really serious I've, used, I've used them <laughs> I've used and those yeah and he's like you know and i'm like yeah, and people don't realize like they find them they see them as trinkets in markets in southeast asia they don't realize they go into these sort of shaman shops and they're like right. oh, wow this cool stuff and you're like mm, no no you don't you're yeah. <laughs> buying that and putting it in my home if you don't know what it is totally yeah, and I, I think it's i think it's important also for folks to understand that this isn't a modern Western critique of Asian, Asian traditions. Yes. These critiques have been present in the traditions themselves for a very long time. Machi Klapchen is a great example of this. She mm -hmm. lived in the 11th century, but you can read the writings attributed to her. And she says specifically, you know, every all you know tibetan buddhists or, you know buddhists they do all these wrathful mantras and wrathful rituals destroying all these beings and torturing them and trapping them in boxes and doing all yeah. these things and my students should not do that my students shouldn't use uh wrathful mantras or charmed substances that are intended to torture and beat down and drive out and to kill other beings even non-human spirits she's really speaking about them specifically in that case so she that's her advice which goes completely against what most Buddhists in that time in Tibet were doing, where many of them were in fact doing wrathful mantras. Today, many Tibetan Buddhists in Asia and outside of Asia do wrathful practices, Vajrakila or Mahakala practices, or you know various protector rites to try to get the protector. You can feel the energy shifting. I mean, you can if you're part of, like ever. I mean, I know you have. I've been a part of these rituals too, where you're like, whoa, you can totally. 
you can totally feel, you can feel the spirit. It's not a, I mean, just talking about, I'm getting goosebumps, but you can like feel the shift, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very yeah. real. It's a, yeah. It's a very real. I mean, the, yeah, uh, we can talk about this better, but even like one of the famous <laughs> uh, um, dances, the ritual dances in the Tibetan tradition, a black hat dance, yes. uh, where the, the dancer wears this, you know, a black gown and a black hat, a big round brim black hat, and they, they um, you know, put marks on their face and they do this dance. And this is done a lot in Tibetan rituals as well. It's a suppression ritual. That black hat and the cloak and the whole thing, it's actually an echo back to a story uh, from the Tibetan, late in Tibetan imperial era, where there was supposedly an evil king who was against Buddhism, a non-Buddhist king. And the Buddhists were so upset about him that they had him assassinated. And the assassin wore a black hat and a black cloak and they disguised themselves. And this is reenacted constantly in ritual procedures, massive Drupchen ceremonies, and also ritual dances that people do as like performances. It's yeah. done constantly. It, and that was itself an assassination of a political ruler that was not favorable to the religious institution of the day. So these these constructs, Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, a lot of these traditions, they are not pacifistic. They are not, in fact, entirely peaceful. And there are elements of them that should actually be critiqued. It isn't just, oh, we have to accept it. That's the way it is. There are elements of it that are problematic and that should really be deconstructed and questioned in yeah, our adoption. Of of Khan, who used shamans to help win, to help conquer oh, many, many lands. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the Mongols, they were, they, the whole Dalai Lama institution was established by the Mongols. That that institution, that institute was put in place, uh, that position was put in place uh, by the Mongols themselves as an extension of sort of Mongolian influence in, uh, Mongol influence in Tibet. But yeah, all that of that, I, yeah, I, I think that ritual is important. I think that ritual is many things though, and we have to be uh, careful about how we engage with, with ritual. You know, on a very pragmatic level, I think it's useful to have rituals to be able to amend for the destructive things that we do, but we have to be very careful not to allow the possibility for amendment, for atonement, uh, to actually separate us from uh, the, the willingness to not cause harm in the first place. And I think this is a major problem in Buddhism. I think this is a major problem, obviously, in a lot of Western religious traditions. Christianity is the epitome of this, because you don't actually have to do anything good in your entire life. You do not have to live ethically or morally at all that doesn't get you closer to heaven. The only thing that gets you to heaven within a traditional Christian worldview is faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and a belief in the scriptures as they're delivered. That's all that's required. And these sorts of religious structures, these sorts of ritual and ceremonial structures are incredibly dangerous because they're actually ways of sidestepping morality or relationship altogether so that it becomes very easy to transgress against the values that we claim to hold because it's so easy to just fix it well okay so eric we've had an amazing conversation yeah. <laughs> so you know we've we've, we've we've discussed many aspects of your book and 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 gone off and off off the topic as well but totally uh you know explored your book you know i think in a very extensive way and, and it's fantastic and you know the book again is unseen beings how we forgot the world is more than human uh, by Eric Jumper Anderson. And I, God, I just, I, there's so much in here. I mean, I, I'm assuming you're going to write a second one that extends on this because it's just, there's it, a lot there. Yeah, probably, probably a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. I, I think each of the chapters I would like to extend into a, 
into okay. a book. Yeah, so, it totally we'll feels like, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is awesome. It's great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me twice. It's been great. <laughs> really appreciate it.